What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast. And of course, our website, talklouderpodcast.com, where you'll find links to our merch and all of our previous episodes. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today we're joined by an old friend, a guy I met at South by Southwest in 2005. And for him, South by Southwest is a long way from home because he is Canadian. Uh, we've got Sean Kelly on the show today. Sean, uh, possibly best known as the frontman for his band Crash Kelly, but he's done so many other things. He's played with Helix. He's played with Coney Hatch. He plays with Lee Aaron, the metal queen. Uh, he plays with pop star Nelly Furtado, and he is also an accomplished author. He is here today to talk about his second book. It's called Don't Call It Hair Metal. It's an awesome read. And uh, we get into sort of the inspiration behind the book. He tells us that he sort of started the book uh, with the intent of defending hair metal and then at some point a switch went off and he decided to rather than defend it just sort of educate people about it and talk about some of the musicality that goes into this genre that's been sort of uh referred to with this derogatory tag hair metal and he does a great job of sort of analyzing the bands and the music he interviews a bunch of musicians including our own jason mcmaster uh he interviews rudy sarzo vivian campbell uh, D. Snyder. Uh, so a lot of input from people other than himself. And uh, it was a great read. I really enjoyed it. It was real easy to read. And as someone who, you know, kind of grew up with that era of music being very dominant in my life, I could I could relate to it all. So I, I like how he was kind of breaking things down for people uh, on styles you know maybe he maybe he went into some some certain songs you know like for examples but uh i like how he sort of would take the band's sound and break it down uh as to what's really happening when the singer does this and the guitar player does this yeah. um he and and this is all pertaining under the banner don't call it hair metal as to why you know these these guys sound this way because it's it's more like because of where they're from, that they're a product there of their environment and not just, they didn't wait for MTV to blow up and have a bunch of hair metal bands in order to become this there. He also talks about how uh, Rudy Sarzo is corrective of him when he's talking about mental health and quiet riots, uh, you know, number one smash hit. Because Rudy, he talks about how Rudy corrected him and said, we're from the 70s. Don't forget it. We yeah. are 10, 15, 20 years prior to someone coming up with a term derogatory, probably, arguably, hair metal. So we, we know how each other played. You know, we, so we wrote songs that way. And then... We just thought we were calling it rock and roll. Next thing you know, a few years later, someone's calling it this certain thing. So there's all of this sort of aspect and vision. And uh, like you said, 
knowledge that people don't real is not being realized by just a radio DJ or a, or even on old people who used to tape videos, you know, used to tape Headbangers Ball and you know the VJ is just carelessly calling ACDC a hair metal band or whatever. Maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't happen. But yeah. we talk about these things and we get into it today with Sean. Um, you know, I just want to say he's probably one of the busiest rock musicians and still has time to write two going on three books. Yes. Be, and be uh, and just and be a dad and be this guy and have pay mortgage and like do survive yeah he's like a superman kind yeah. of thing. hyper intelligent i know that sounds like i'm calling him a name i wish people would call me hyper intelligent because <laughs> i am not bad this guy is truly just all guns blazing all gears are clean and he just uh he i i really like the guy a lot i've had um the uh you know honor of sharing the stage with him worldwide i've done festivals overseas with with either crash kelly or like i was just on the cruise where he was uh playing with lee aaron so it's mm -hmm. kind of important to me that that we got to talk to him and, and specific to to his new book don't call it hair metal we also find out some cool information about something that is coming out that is, I'll just call it as he did, a companion to uh, the book. And I think that anyone who gets the book will be excited to hear about what uh, is in store for, you know, people who have the book should probably also get this other item too. Yeah, um, yeah I just, I enjoyed it. Uh, thanks Dave for setting that up. Yeah, absolutely. He's a super sweet guy. I, I, I liked him the minute I met him. I got to give a shout out to Chris Case, who was uh, his manager um, or publicist during the South by Southwest days. He might have been both. But I remember this guy from Canada named Chris Case reaching out to me saying, you got to see this band Crash Kelly. And so I went and I saw him and I loved him. And if you're into, uh, you know, Thin Lizzy, Cheap Trick, Early Aerosmith, Crash Kelly is going to be something you want to check out. They're, they're sort of in that same style of music. But I really enjoyed the fact that in this book, you know, hair metal is often just sort of dismissed as uh, all show and no substance. And I think this might be the first time I've read someone that actually articulates some of the layers that go beyond the MTV videos and the glossy album covers and breaks it down. And it makes sense that a musician would do that because he has that insight to bring to the table as well. But he does a really good, educated, articulate job of explaining why there is more to quote unquote hair metal than meets the eye. So I can't think of a, of, of a more perfect guy to actually do it because he's a musician. He lived it. He fell in love with the music at the, at the time that it was a trend and highly popular. Uh, and uh, I fully enjoyed hanging out with him. Uh, Sean Kelly and his book, uh, Don't Call It Hair Metal, today on the Talk Louder podcast. <laughs> How's life? Oh, life's good. Life's good. Dave. Sean, what's happening, buddy? How are you? 
I'm good, man. I haven't seen you in, uh, I was trying to do the homework and I think it was South by Southwest 2005. Hard to believe, eh? I know. Um, wow. Yeah, I have a photo of me and you at Stubbs during South by. I think we were watching the new, the much anticipated return of the New York Dolls. That's right. I, yeah. I remember it. I remember it clearly. That was exciting. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Sean, we, <laughs> we just hang out and record it. Yeah. yeah, man. Perfect. I love it. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So, um, Obviously, if I haven't seen you since 2005, there's a lot to catch up on, but uh, <laughs> we won't we won't try to compile all that into a single episode. Um, you obviously are an accomplished musician um, and we want to get into all that. But uh, the main reason we wanted to talk to you today is about this awesome new book that you just yeah. released called Thanks. Don't Call It Hair Metal. Uh, art in the excess of eighties rock. This is your second book and, uh, we'll get into your first book metal on ice in just a bit, but, um, let's to talk be, about, to be don't honest, I didn't, I don't think I knew about the first book. Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, we, we did a whole show on Canadian rock bands, Canadian yes, metal bands. Yeah. Uh, for those of you listening and watching, you can go back through our archives and look that one up. Uh, we covered uh, all the greats, uh, much like Sean did in his book, Metal on Ice. Uh, what I liked about it was the fact that you spent a lot of time on some of the unsung heroes, the Killer Dwarves, the Helix, the Honeymoon Suite, uh, 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 Kim Webster, and, and you know, stuff, Mitchell, stuff yeah. that... Uh, Kim Mitchell. Kim Mitchell. Kim Mitchell, I'm sorry. Yeah. Max Webster. Max Webster. Yeah, there we go. You're on the right, you're on the right track. I, I'm putting them together. You had a contract word there. Yeah, I uh, I created a hybrid. I created my own Canadian <laughs> metal band. Like yeah, you did. But um, we'll come back to that uh, in just a moment. But yeah, this is Sean's second book. Don't call it hair metal. And uh, so I read in the intro of the book that you you wanted to write a book about you almost wanted to defend the genre that's rightfully or wrongly known as hair metal. And then you kind of stepped back and decided not to take such a defensive position. So tell me about that, that change in direction there. Well, yeah, I think at first I definitely, I had, I had my backup uh, after years of, of defending, uh, 80s rock and roll what i call rock and roll music that happened to take place in the 80s okay yes. uh and many times in my professional career i've seen a bias against uh ideas that may have been inspired by 80s bands for example if i'm on a session and i bring in a riff and someone says oh that's cool uh, yeah and i say yeah it reminds me of cinderella that would be often met with derision whereas if i said oh the same riff was inspired by Aerosmith. As long as it was Rock's era Aerosmith, that would be cool. Right. You know, like that, that seemed to, even though the idea would have been the same, even a mention of it uh, could, could cause uh, a bias against, against what I was bringing to the table. And I think that's because for so many people, uh, these artists are like a moment frozen in time. They saw an album cover and that's it. They never went any deeper than that. Now, part of that's because of the cultural zeitgeist that was happening in the 80s. Sure, 
image was important and with the dawn of MTV and and the importance uh, that that, you know, the, the role that that played in bring, helping bring music to the masses, I get it. But I've followed this music fervently since I was 10 years old and I still follow it. I follow the artists who created it and I see that they're still creating great music. So I felt the need to at least bring that up. But early on, I realized it's pointless because what you end up doing is you end up alienating people. And I actually don't look at music as a way of alienating people. I look at music as a way of bringing people together. Yeah. So I thought the best way to do that is just to share what I loved about it and maybe draw some parallels between what some people really liked and say, look, at it's not that big of a stretch between Elvis Costello and Enough's Enough. If you have a little faith in me, I, I'm going to show you, maybe, maybe I can show you. And if you don't buy it at the end, well, at least I tried. But Really, I just wanted to trace the sonic evolution uh, of the music through through that decade and, and, and beyond. And also the artistic intention behind the people, because really, I'm into music for the people. I do this for friendship and I do this for fellowship. And uh, that's what I'm what I've taken away as, as the great reward for my music career was. Friends. Amen. Amen. That I can talk to you guys after almost 20 years of working together, or seeing each other and we can be yeah. friendly and, and have conversations and feel like close even though we yeah. haven't been close enough right yeah uh, it just yeah. your words make me so happy just to hear you lay it on the line like that no pun intended but uh the um the ideas behind this quotes don't call it hair metal it really strike a nerve many nerves actually with me because you've already mentioned aerosmith okay if someone were to just kind of bash you know, use hair metal as a term, uh, whether, you know, just as a term, I'm not saying they love it or hate it, but they would yeah. include bands like ACDC and Aerosmith, like you mentioned Aerosmith, in in this box that says hair metal written on it. You know, if they were had a CD collection or an album collection, they would say, or like you're in a current record store, and a record store that's open right now, you would go to a hair metal section would Aerosmith and ACDC be, would, would Motorhead be in that? You see what I'm trying to say? That yeah. hurts my feelings when it really shouldn't. But, right. but I understand why it would hurt my feelings as to why someone would just be uh, lazy enough to not just say, yeah, we sell rock and roll and all kinds of music and Motorhead's under rock and roll, just like Hanoi rocks. Yeah, yeah man. Well, that, I, I think that's it, right? Like, really, the best of all of that music should be part of the tapestry, the overarching story of rock and roll, right? And, and, and it's often not. It's glossed over something other or lesser than. And, yeah. and it's not fair, and it's not right, and it's not educated. It's, not, it's actually not a, a, a reasonable thing to say if you haven't done the research. And, and you know, we've all lived the research here, so. Yeah. I think we're going to share share some of that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's also okay. I just want to get off my fucking soapbox here. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's also okay for people to want to like the term, to be okay with calling it hair metal if they fucking want to. Sure. Because they have uh invested uh, their heartstrings and their their money and their lives to being a fan of of 
such a thing. The thing is, is they have within their hair metal collection, they've got every Metallica album. You see, exactly. See what I'm saying? But they love, they want to call it hair metal. I think that 80s metal might be a sl- only slightly better term than hair metal because it takes the hair off of it. Um, right. Yeah. But I, I did an interview one time with Nikki Six, and he said something that that has stuck with me for a long time. And he said, "Yeah, uh, he said I don't want to be remembered as a hair band." When you look at bands like Metallica and U2, nobody remembers them as 80s rock or right. 80s bands or whatever. Right. They, they, they've kind of transcended everything, and they're not, they're not identified by a decade. They are what they are, and I think the point he was trying to make was that's something to strive for. But I thought it was interesting, and so, in, and so is the title of your book. Um, and to speak to what Jason was just saying, it's almost as if hair metal uh, and 80s rock have become sort of interchangeable when that's not really the case at all. Because you can look at a Metallica and an Iron Maiden bands that, you know, hit their stride in the 80s, but nobody considers them 80s and they certainly don't consider them hair metal. So it's almost like it's this subgenre of music that, ha- that just happened in the 80s. Uh, but and somehow, for some reason, it's become almost derogatory. Well, that's it. I think the, ter- the the genesis of the term was derogatory. It was kind of a facile term to kind of lump uh, all kind of 80s commercial rock or, or, or the, the commercial rock of the 80s, because hard rock was at one point the predominant pop music, yeah. you know, yes. in, in the 80s. And I think that that's what happened when when bands like Nirvana came along, um, you know, it was a, a reaction against what had become a very refined and corporate look. Like, I mean, that has as much to do, though, with the corporatization of record companies and conglomerations where you brought in people who weren't necessarily music lovers, but bean counters. Hey, look at we got to sell X amount. We got shareholders. What's selling the W, White Snake, Winger, Warren. I need a W. I need a W, and I need someone who looks like this. And we're going to use this producer and this clothing designer, and we're going to use this video director, and we're going to pop it out, and one of them is going to hit. Yeah. And I think that that did happen. And and and, and to be fair, you know, maybe they lost some the soul. But even within those bands, there were talented individuals and people with dreams and people with ambition and 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 you know people whose heart was in the right place and they were just trying to get their art across. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you made a point uh, in the book. I believe it was in the book where you made this point where you were, you were saying that a lot of this so-called hair metal or eighties rock gets marginalized and discounted or whatever. But in fact, a lot of the, especially in hard rock and metal, the guitar players uh, were sort of, you know, rising to the top and and showing off some technical proficiency that hadn't really been seen on a wide scale. So I think the point you were making was you can't just dismiss this as as talentless bubblegum. There's a lot of great musicianship going on here. And it was particularly evident with the lead guitar players. Yeah, well, even, you know, beyond the obvious technical proficiency, what, what stuck out to me from doing the book when I talked to guys like Warren DeMartini and George Lynch was the affection for Jimi Hendrix and what the role that 
they were looking at themselves and Jakey Lee too as extensions of what Hendrix was doing, which is so, funny. I always thought of them as like post Van Halen or post Randy Rhodes. Sure. But they're these guys are are 10 years older than me. They're coming from a 70s place. And when I went back and listened, I realized it was this brightness of tone, this adventurousness. What they were doing was not necessarily, I mean, I guess you could make an argument that later on some people did make it about gymnastics but it was actually about a search for tone and adventurousness adventurous phrasing and 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 that to me is what i find so exciting i i, I often have this argument where people say well you know i like elliot easton because elliot easton makes solos you can sing and i agree i love elliot easton but try singing a john coltrane solo you know yeah. what i mean it's not necessarily always about an easily singable or hummable melody it's no. about phrasing and rhythm and texture and that's what guys like demartini and lynch and jakey lee were bringing to the table for me eddie van halen the same thing in many cases so yeah, I, think, could, I think that it could was, have been like a saxophone solo it, it wouldn't have to fit you know the uh, no disrespect to eddie and twisted sister but his solos are not like that in my no. No, they're more like a Leslie West type thing. Where they it's are, like this, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I got are. that. D. Yeah. Snyder told me that he goes, "It was Leslie West." We were listening. It was that Long Island thing, you know, like yeah. where it's like heavy blues, but with melodies, thematic, right? Which is also wonderful, you know. Valuable, very valuable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing that jumped out at me in the book, a point you made, and I thought this was really interesting, is you could argue. An argument could be made that Van Halen almost sort of created the whole hair metal genre, and yet they escaped the derision of the tag. So somehow they became the poster boys and the band that everybody imitated, but they never were categorized or dismissed as hair metal. So how do you explain that? Because I thought it was a great point. Uh, to me, it's almost like they were a combination of walking art installation and conquering Viking. Like, it was just this other yeah. thing. Like, I mean, you've just yeah. got the story of the two immigrant brothers who are just so closely joined because, you know, they have to do this to protect themselves. So they develop this bond that turns into a musical bond. You have this bass player who's got a tenor like a trumpet, uh, you know, yeah. who just adds this vocal blend. This singer who's like out of vaudeville meets Jim Dandy from Black Oak, Arkansas. The mashup is so bizarre. The personality is so strong. To me, it, it just ran like a parallel course with what they were influencing because you couldn't you couldn't create it. You couldn't make that up in a boardroom. You know what I mean? Right. It was just the, the combination. And and also, I think with Van Halen, they did it all with a smile on their face. Yes. Mm. Humor joy there yeah. was joy there like they never looked happy they might have been hating each other backstage but the joy was there when they were playing live yeah, yeah. the the tongue-in-cheek is there uh the entire time that the that like you said they're smiling and they're kind of they almost look like the beatles you know when yeah. they're smiling and they all look they look very uniform but very uh there's something unique about each individual uh and and I couldn't have said it better uh, talking about Van Halen here. The idea that 
they were smiling and were trying to get you get the party started but the riffs being like the the music that was coming off the stage while these guys are doing like cheerleader moves yeah yeah (laughs) it's true they are (laughs) yeah but you have a song like atomic punk that's just mowing your brain cell and and like uh you know and what they're going what their what their agenda is is not what their smiling faces and rah 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 go team cheerleader kicks and flying through the air and you know they look like happy ice skaters wearing hot pink and yay, you know what i mean but but not so it's like uh they were definite wolves in sheep's clothing which is kind of like where i think when like i mentioned hanoi rocks that's like a sleaze that's dirtier than van halen yeah. ever looked to me so that's where a sleaze and and I feel like your book kind of you know goes a couple of different ways when it talks about the difference between oh uh, you know I don't know a Motley Crue versus like a Hanoi Rocks because it's not the same they're not doing no. the same thing um, although you know the closest thing I feel like Hanoi Rocks might have lent itself to with without even knowing they were nodding they were letting you know people they were getting nods left and right is when guns and roses or i should could even say hollywood rose yeah came out and were looking dirtier and sleazier than even a motley crew which for for a second if you squint they look uniform too like kiss or or something and 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 van halen was kind of like a like you said their own thing and they i feel like the clothes they wore other than roth maybe the clothes they just wore around out those were the clothes they wore on stage and it i was think time so. they were like the late seven mid 70s and late 70s just look that they had i mean i don't think roth was walking around without a shirt on and and wearing you know fringy tight spandex pants and that barely covered his you know pubic hair wouldn't yeah, yeah. have passed him but, never but know. right right you never know right <laughs> you never know but i but i feel like when those guys were coming out i'm so glad you brought up van halen because when those guys were coming out it 80s metal it was not was not it was pre their their proto <laughs> glam they're proto-american i mean sure aerosmith had already been there and were already doing their own thing and might have even now that i think about it had that sleaze thing going that dirtier thing you know happening i don't want to mention drugs but that that was after a while some people might have even called a genre of music heroin rock you know or junkie rock or whatever but i really um you know whether they were on dope or not i got that i get that when they're describing that i would hate for people to just know me as oh yeah he's in this heroin rock band you know i i get that but (laughs) it that sounds derogatory again i wouldn't want that to define a genre of music just like i don't want hair metal to define a genre of music when it's right. just rock and roll so 
It's yeah. just rock and roll. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to put the yogurt somewhere in the supermarket, right? Like, I do get it, and we do categorize yeah. things. This is what we do, right? And that's okay. I think it's just when it's used as a blanket term uh, that that to kind of you, like, I mean, you can't encompass uh, docking and Cinderella or dangerous toys. Or sea hags or Hanoi rocks. There's a lot of different stuff going on there. And they're different. I think, that it's, I think that I just want to say it's fucking lazy. Lazy. It's yeah, lazy. Yeah. Categories yeah. always are. But we're, we're, we're a fast-paced, no attention span. Uh, and it's even worse today than it's ever been. And this has been going on for, for decades. Sure. But uh, people always need to put something in a quick box just so they can, you know, quickly make their point and they don't spend a lot of time with the nuances. Well, they did it with calling new, you know, this new batch of rock and roll uh, grunge too. the same fucking thing happened. It's like, what if I don't want my band to be categorized as this thing called grunge? Yeah. Which I think is de derived from like garage rock and punk rock and some kind of pop music because I, I like Nirvana but they'll tell you themselves that they were more ripping off kiss and cheap trick than anyone else on their street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wait, okay. Well, let's back up. I thought they were a grunge band. Listen to the guys in the band talk about it. So the feeling is probably somewhat mutual might be some gray area. Surely there's a lot of grunt quote grunge bands that were like grunge. I'm just playing rock and roll. Well, think about Stone Temple Pilots, how ridiculous it is, ridiculous it is to categorize them as a grunge band. Yeah. Really, like it's like Bowie, it's a cheap trick. It's it's yes, Aerosmith. Zeppelin. Zeppelin. Yeah. Aerosmith. Yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. fashionable and stylish. Yeah. It's not yeah. uh, it's not this woe is me depressive uh shall I say heroin rock. Heroin rock. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. when I knew we were gonna have this conversation today, I started thinking about the term hair metal and and it easily jumps out as maybe the most convenient and also most derogatory if that might be a strong word but it is it is a genre of music that's been tagged with a very strong uh label and i started thinking are there other genres of music that have been that have suffered that same fate and i got to thinking and i'm in modern times more modern times anyway i came up with You've got bro country and you've got jock rock. <laughs> yeah. yeah and right. So, I mean, you know, hair metal is no longer an exclusive club. There are uh, genres of music that get lumped into a derogatory category. I bet the bro country dudes don't appreciate being called oh, bro country. No. And there's also, right. there's also a, a term I've heard that was basically like around the late nineties and early two thousands. I've, pretty much maybe a little bit further back is bro metal bro yeah metal. Wow. that's bro kind of where metal. i was going with, yeah. with jock rock it's the limp biscuits and the ah uh, uh, man it's, bro it's, metal yeah yeah, yeah. so we're not <laughs> alone those one. of us that's, that's true <laughs> yeah it's ugly man Tell me about you in the in the book, Sean. You have input. This is great. I mean, you had Rudy Sarzo participate in the book, uh, Warren D. Martini, D. Snyder, Vivian Campbell, our own Jason McMaster. Uh, was there anybody that you wanted to get to speak uh, in your book that you couldn't get? 
Yeah, Tom Kiefer would have been uh, would have been absolutely brilliant to talk to because to me he represents exactly what I've been trying to say: the diversity and the talent, and and someone who's developed and and went you know the opposite. Like you know, even even the first Cinderella record has it feels more like an old Aerosmith record than anything else. You know. At, with a little bit of Judas Priest maybe in there, with a little bit of, of, of a nod to the metal that was happening. But then they moved more into Americana. It became yes. the, the, a broadening of the instrument palette. You know, you've got dobros and banjos and mouth harp. You've got um, uh, this, this, you know, when they did a ballad, it was more dynamic. It seemed like there was more going on. Like they would get John Paul Jones to come in and do the string arrangements on a ballad. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't about synthesizer pads. It was about creating organic sounds. And I thought it would have been brilliant. And I came close. I had his publicist kind of going back and forth. And I don't, I don't, I don't know why we couldn't connect. He's probably this busy guy. Uh, but I would love to speak with him anyway. Just, just, I, I, I actually did an episode of a show called the contrarians with Martin Popoff. And we talked a lot about Heartbreak Station. And I just said, you know, like that's such a wonderful, that's like, to me, that if, if I wanted to explain um, American roots music to somebody, I'd say, check out that record. Like, you know, everything, you know, right right up to the, the 50s, you know, right up to Chuck Berry. It's you know, all in there, Little Richard. You know, I feel like you're, you know, Canadians, Brian Adams could have covered Don't Know What You Got Till It's Gone. And it, no one would have even known that he didn't even write it. That's a great just, point. Wow. I can just hear Brian Adams singing that song, doing his his take with tellies and tellies and leather jackets and cool Elvis hair and just just yeah. being Brian yeah. Adams, but singing that song. I, that think I, would, I think it would totally translate. So that says a lot about uh, his pops. I'm talking about Tom now. His his pop sensibility on top of his love for Stones and Aerosmith and just Bob Dylan and good good old storytelling and uh, Americana theme. Uh, you know what I mean? Last train yeah. home kind of shit. You know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm standing in line at the bus station and and writing a song about me standing in line at the bus station. Real <laughs> shit. You know, just yeah. real shit. Um, I think Tom could in your book uh, could have his own chapter about uh, and this is I can't wait to say this part. What is up with their clothing on Night Song's album cover? And then you hear the record and it doesn't wait a minute. And what's up with the band name, the look they have? And then you hear the record and you're and it, it ties in with exactly what you've already said in the past five minutes. But when I think about that, I mean, the song, the title track is my favorite song. And it's yeah. so heavy and fucking dark. And the I mean, that's like a satanic hurdy-gurdy going on. Yeah, it is. Oh, my God. I'm, something's about to fucking break. Something bad a, witch, oh, a spell is being cast right now. So and it's, called, and it's called Night Songs. It even sounds like a horror film or something. There you go, right? Yeah. Oh, so what the hell is the witchcraft that is that song especially and the things that are happening here? And they're wearing boas with, you know, Aquanet. And, and I'm like, hold on, who made them do? Were they at gunpoint when they made this album cover? Were they, who made them call? Did Bon Jovi name the band and go, yeah, you need to call yourself Cinderella? I'm like, what is going on here? Because 
you're hitting it on the fucking head, Sean, when you say after that, it turned into just a little dirtier and, and the look they had was just like, ah, I might have some leather pants and a just a t-shirt and some cowboy boots on. And that was it. Yeah. It was less glam, less hair metal and very much just good fucking rock and roll songwriting with balladeering themes. Well, isn't it funny that the band that probably has least of the musical qualities that people often associate with hair metal have the absolute definitive image of a hair metal band on that yeah. album cover. Like it looks like a petting zoo assaulted a neon sign and it just all went <laughs> wrong. Right. Like it's something else. But, but having said all that, that purple stood out to me. I do have okay. a memory of walking into a record store and going, cool. So I do remember I, I that. See, I had this I see with that. Poison. Yeah. With Poison too, there was something about the outright androgyny like of, of it that just, hey, there's something that's going to make my parents mad or, or that's that's not what everyone else is doing. I Even though I guess it was what everyone else was doing at a certain extent. But sure. I, when I saw that, it felt rebellious. It felt dangerous. It felt alluring. And, you know, in my kind of bucolic, you know, Northern Ontario upbringing, it felt exciting, you know? And I think that that's, you know, much like where before it used to be, you'd throw on an Elvis record or a Buddy Holly record and you'd feel excited. Now you get to feel excited after you saw the thing that made you feel excited. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So you were getting a kind of a double dose. And then once people realized the power of that, I think you saw an abuse of that later on. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, bigger. Yeah. yeah. I love that you mentioned Tom Kiefer because, uh, man, you talk about that guy is the act, the embodiment of what we're talking about here. He is a guy, like you said, you saw one look at that album cover, boom, immediately. I mean, the term hair metal could have been invented right then and there. And then he, he turned into something. He, he didn't turn into something. He already was something that was far beyond right. that. So he would have been, I could see why you really wanted him in the book, uh, because he could speak to both sides of, of the equation here. Who else did you reach out to uh, that you really wanted their opinion? I'm trying to think of who else. I would have loved to have spoken with Jakey e. Lee. Because uh, then I would have had the, the holy trinity of post Van Halen L.A. guitar heroes. You know what I mean? I would have had because that's such a fascinating situation. It's it's much like the, you know, the Clapton, Page and Beck thing where these guys live so close to each other in like rural England. Like and yet they and, and, and they would go to school and they talk to each other and show up at their houses playing guitar and they change the world, yeah. literally change the world. And, like these three guys and to me it was very much like that that was the feeling i got and when i listen back to to warren and to to george and jake it's amazing how they were influencing each other in real time like you know george told me about warren coming over to help him prepare for the aussie audition because warren wow. had a bootleg of believer of a live bootleg and he'd say oh i i went to see him i was 18 rows back i think randy plays it up here like, so th that's wow. the way the information's being disseminated. Yeah. It, it's not like going on YouTube and getting an open, you're interpreting it. And they're interpreting it through two prisms. 
the prism of watching it in a kind of flawed way, but then also the prism of two talented people figuring it out together. Like, that's exciting. And Jake's living with Warren, and Warren's got long fingers. Hey, man, I can play this lick. So Jake goes, well, if I put my thumb here and I do that, I can do it too. Oh, I just invented something. And they're doing that all the time. Yeah. And at one point, George told me he joined Rat for a week and Warren joined Dawkin because they were across from each other. They just got sick of each other's bands. Like, this is mind-blowing to me. <laughs> like, how can this be happening? Wow. Yeah. So yeah. that kind of information, I just went back and listened. And, and, and then to hear the influence, like uh, Uli John Roth, like Warren DeMartini getting Uli John Roth's phone number and phoning him in Germany, you know, and his mom getting mad about the long distance charge. It's like unbelievable. Wow. But you can hear it and you can yeah. hear the intention. Like I'm going to learn, I'm going to play sales of Sharon, but I'm going to do it on a pop tune. And it incredible. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. mind blowing. Uh, you mentioned Cinderella and, and I'll throw in Tesla. Uh, what other band of the, of that era gets unfairly labeled hair metal? Oh man. I think there's a couple, like, I mean, you know, um, I would say, and, and this is, this is dicey cause I've got the singer sitting here. I'm, I'm, you, you can spank me if I'm out of line, but you know, <laughs> I've heard Dangerous Toys labeled as hair metal, but to me, if, if it's absolutely Southern fried boogie rock with intensity and precision and dry, no bullshit tone. Like, it's in your face. Jason's singing like that with intention. Scott's playing like that with this dry but meaty tone. Like, it actually sounds like the environment they're coming from, or at least what I imagine, you know? And it swings. Like it's got the element of swing. It's not like it's moving and it moved me. So that to me was a, a prime example. I talked with you about this, you know, Jason, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like how I, I listened to that and went, that guy's the bravest guitarist I ever heard. Like that's, it was like him and Mick Sweeta. Like they're playing like this, playing these great, aggressive, technically challenging and highly musical licks, but but they're hooks, you know what I mean? And they're doing it without all the delays and effects on it. It's just happening right in your face. So I thought that, you know, you could say, uh, I thought there was a band called Company of Wolves. That, yeah, that I Steve remember Bonner. that. Yeah, I just yeah. bought their album on vinyl. I mean, it's Roots Rock with the odd foray into a whammy bar. Once in a while, a whammy bar wow. appears. But really, it, it's, 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 it's American Roots Rock. Um, so I think that there are quite a few bands like that. Um, yeah, Tesla was a is a is a great example. Yeah. Um, Do you think that yeah. Twisted Sister would be able to to you know fight their way out of the argument? I mean, because they're where they, the makeup and the, I mean, it's bombastic. But I think that it's it's not as much clown show as people have you know sort of like put them into because they're to me they're more like. A, glossy motorhead totally to me it's more like dictators or something yeah, like it's yeah, coming yeah. out of the, yeah. that new york yeah very much uh, very much a punk rock thing yes but with with also like the where they were coming from with that would a d told me like d and jj went to go see an off-broadway production of uh rocky horror picture he said i oh, can't yeah. tell you how influential that was wow. and that's that 50s thing 
50s rock was a big thing too, right? The doo-wop thing, the Shanana thing. So you've got 50s rock, uh, punk rock, but also this kind of the steel-fisted thing of early Judas Priest uh, and, and Motorhead, like you yeah. said, uh, working with Pete Way from UFO, yeah. like like live. Like, I mean, I played with D. It's scary to be on stage with D. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an intensity. First time I ever played with him, I didn't know he was coming on. I just felt something shooting up my spine. And then this thing ran by me and my monitors were blowing up and my head was exploding and my heart was raising. I'm going, this is the most ferocious thing I've ever felt in my life. And you lucky man, you. Dude, oh, so lucky. <laughs> but this is at a rehearsal for a Christmas musical. This is at <laughs> rehearsal. <laughs> He's like that in the morning. But that, that's nice. the first thing he does. Wait till you wait till you get to nighttime. Like oh, it's, it's it's a whole <laughs> thing. But yeah, you know what? They they get lumped in with that. And you know, they had they, there was there was an a, an effort to capture that, make it radio friendly. Uh they had the image, which was far more Looney Tunes though and Animal House than it was trying to pander to uh some some perverted sexuality figures up. It was I, fun. I, I think their personalities lent to what you just described. Yeah. You know, the animal house and the like the Looney Tunes and crazy like uh this crazy stuff. Their videos were like that. Yeah. I was just all gonna say time. yeah all the time like that. I think the videos more so than anything is what put them in that box because they were sort of a motorhead type street biker band and then of course they changed their image with stay hungry but that image probably wouldn't it, i know it wouldn't it wouldn't have been broadcast nearly as much without mtv and i think there might not be another band from the quote unquote hair metal era that became synonymous with the label as twisted sister because of their videos they were in your living room 24 7 the the videos the characters the guys in the band were larger than life the hair is huge the colors are loud and they were they were in your face nonstop so i yeah. think if you'd taken twisted sister and they never made an appearance on mtv they might not be in this discussion that we're having they might be awesome. more of an underground band like a hanoi rocks or something but they were all over they were they were as popular as mcdonald's they were everywhere in, do you think that, that do you think that that i mean it, it, i think i know the answer but do you it didn't hurt them but do you think that it hurt them by way of what we're talking about I, you'd have to ask the guys in the band i think it was you know i i would have done it <laughs> you know well, i mean well, i don't i don't want to i don't think d would have let would have made a video that he didn't want to make Right. And I think it goes back to what you said. You made a great point a minute ago, Jason, where you said those videos are reflections of the personalities within the band. Because, I mean, Sean here knows D better than us, but, uh, that, you know, we we were talking to Eddie Ojeda at the Rockin' Pod. Uh, I've interviewed D before. They definitely have... Uh, a sense of humor about them and you could tell that they love animal house they can probably quote animal house and mad magazine and looney tunes and all that stuff so um yeah i don't i i think they would have made those videos anyway uh i just think the timing was everything mm -hmm. uh, mtv was looking for visual artists 
They didn't get much more visual than Twisted Sister. And boom, there you go. It's an image that never lived down for better or worse. I'm sorry we're talking over you, Sean, but I want to bring up things that you've said as well. Like you you mentioned like swing. And and of course you were talking about my band for a second, but the, the but Ace of Spades swings. Absolutely. It's slimy. You know what I mean? You can like shimmy shimmy to that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like Overkill. You know, Motorhead has that. The song Overkill, the song Ace of Spades, it has that shimmy shimmy. It has that swing. Well, yeah. you got to think about, let's let's go Twisted Sister. You think about uh, Can't Stop Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. That's swing, man. You can you could do a little you could tap dance to that. You could you could do two step to that. People aren't realizing the well, first off, the musicality of these guys feeling that and creating that. It's not just boo oh ah oh ah. I mean, we're not gonna take it as that. Yeah. But there's but all But even that has swing. Yes. Yep. Yep. But you know, but you know, but you, yeah, but you know what I mean. It it has that gang, 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 gang. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's got that to it. But the point being, these guys were creating the same things that Buddy Holly was creating when they wrote a song. Yeah. Yeah. So it pretty, and that's it's where they're coming from. Like AJ Perro and Filthy Animal Taylor were both influenced by big band music. Yes. That was where they came from. I actually got to do a record with AJ. Wow. And his pocket was so wide. I was like, is this in time? And I'm going and, and I'm playing with John Reagan, one of the great bass players of all time. Rest in peace for both of those brothers, by the yes. way. Um, and he's going, oh yeah, it's right. You're wrong. I was like, got it, got it. Okay, I got it. This is right. Like he's going, I like this guy played with Frampton. He played with Robin Trower. If he's telling me it's right, it's right. And sure enough, it's this expansive sense of time that is just it, it really does it, it can be almost off-putting in that someone has so much freedom within the parameters of the bar line. Like it's incredible, right? And once you start feeling that and you interpret that, you realize, and Alex Van Halen has that. Same, yeah. He's not he, He's not going, oh, can you set, maybe let's get the click, I'll, I'll see. Steve just going, right. and Eddie's just going, Eddie's eating a sandwich, and he's tuning to whatever the hell is, <laughs> he thinks is in tune. And Michael Anthony's just catching up, they go. Because the moment is happening, it's electric, right? You're, you're capturing exactly. lightning in a bottle. <laughs> Yeah, well, and you think about you think about AJ and and his untimely passing, and then Twisted Sister is going to continue. And who do they get? They don't get like you know, uh, I don't know, a Phil Rudd type of a drummer. They yeah. get Portnoy. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. well, hold on a second. Twisted Sister, who has all of this, you could. You could count people on the side of the fucking road all day that probably don't like a twisted sister. And then the other whole other side of the street is flipping those guys off going, we love twisted sister. Yeah. But the point is this, they get, you know, a prog rock drummer who, who they know can play AJ's pocket that you're describing as this godly, insane, 
you know, attribute to music in general and that style yeah. and that know-how and, and uh, technique. Yeah. They get Mike Portnoy to come in and do so, just so the songs can feel like they did with AJ. And I, I just dropped the mic right here. Yeah, man. No, no. Granted. That's, yeah. that's, that's perfect. And you, yeah. you nailed it. And you got to get a guy from, I think I think Mike's from Long Island too, right? Yes. I think you got to get somebody who, who yeah. just gets, because that Long Island thing is a thing. I Having gone there, I, I was rehearsing with a band that was down there and meeting all those guys. I went, yep. They've got their own thing, and 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 it's it's just a very unique culture. Take no bullshit. <laughs> Call it you like you see it, which I actually loved. I I absolutely adored all the people I met from there. And makes sense, man. Yeah, Long seems, seems fast. Seems it's like fast they're, already. They're, they're fast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They can. They're gonna go. They're yeah, gonna have you behind if you're not careful. That's right. They, they don't suffer fools. <laughs> oh. <laughs> With, the, uh, with this being your second book now, uh, what were some of the lessons learned from your first go around that you applied to this go around? Well, you know, what's funny. I, I actually did something different. I, I ended up writing a lot of the book before I interviewed anybody. I don't know that I do that again, but I just had so many feelings about it. This, this book ended up being a, a real cathartic book for me to write. Yeah. And, I, I, it really spoke to a lot of insecurities I had about myself and that I didn't even realize. It was like this self-reflective thing. Uh, insecurity, like, you know, like a lot of people, I think I felt I imposter syndrome. Like sometimes I felt I've had opportunities I didn't deserve. I don't deserve this. My other guy should get this game. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? Why am I playing in an arena right now? I don't just like, I had all these things. Uh, which is interesting, you know, it, it caused me to reflect. So going back and actually tracing who I was as a listener through my teenagers, I was like, oh, yeah, that that's why I'm so defensive of this music. This is what helped me get through all that stuff. I actually had crushing self-doubt my whole life, but this music emboldened me and gave me purpose and something inside me loved it so much. I was willing to go past my own fears of my own ineptitude to, to go and try it because I just had to be inside it. I had to be a part of it. And that's what I kind of, that's why this book was different. It became something else. And then after I had to go and interview people to, am I full of bullshit here? Like I have to corroborate this. Did I make this up? And it was interesting to see a lot of times uh, the things I felt were, were like were fortified and sometimes they were challenged too. And then both, in both cases, I was very happy because it helped me get a little closer to the truth of why I was actually doing this in the first place, why I was writing this book. Give us an example of someone who challenged your notion of where you thought this was going. Good I'll give you two. I'll give you two. Rudy Sarzo was one because and Rick Emmett for 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 similar reasons. Um, with Rudy, you know, I was talking about the Metal Health album like it's an 80s record. Because to me, it was the first to market pop metal record, really. I mean, Amen. Num yeah. number one in the charts. Uh, and he's going, nah, man, it's a 70s record. Like Frankie and I are from the 70s. So when Frankie Benali and I, because I was talking about some of the shots, oh, how, the way you orchestrated that. And he goes, wasn't orchestrated. I just know that Frankie in the third verse goes, bump, 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 bump. I know Frankie does this thing in the third verse, and we don't have to think about it because we played 
top 40 and disco gigs. And he just knew the way he played. And they recorded that album at Pasha Studios, a jingle house that just happened to have these PCM mics up on the wall that created this reflective sound that we that we've come to know as this kind of definitive 80s drum sound. So it was really just environment, 70s approach. The difference being you had Spencer Proffer producing and he has this vision for participatory rock and has the song in mind. It's going to be Come On, Feel the Noise by Slade. I just got to find some band who'll sing it, someone who can sing like Naughty Holder. Well, there's Dubrow playing around the bars. Hey, I'll give you a shot. You sing this song for me. We'll do a couple of years. I'll give you a production deal. And I'm just going, wow. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at it from the 80s perspective, but really I had to go back further. And Rick Emmett did the same thing because I was talking with Rick and we had a great long conversation. And Rick goes, by that point, Triumph has already had a career. Yeah. So we're not thinking like an eight-bit. Like my references are Genesis and Gentle Giant and Yes and and folk music and classical music. And, and so he goes, you're listening to, you know, Thunder 7 and Spellbound. Yeah. But really, by that point, I've already had, I've already yearning to do something very different, right? So he's 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 not looking at those bands. I had them as contemporaries, like the Us Festival. You're a contemporary of Motley Crue. You're a contemporary of Scorpions. And he's going, well, I think I'm kind of a contemporary of Rush, and I'm a contemporary of, you know, these other bands. I want to be a contemporary of Led Zeppelin. So it was just interesting to see, to, to look at it from a different prism, right? To see that maybe some of the things that I love about the sounds of those records weren't things that they love doing. Like Rudy said at one point, he said, the 80s, oh, for him, a lot of times the cereal box became more important than what was in the cereal box and the cereal itself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how can you say that about white snake you know but he but his white snake was the 70s white snake like he yeah. liked that one better and he wasn't in that one right and i'm right. going what how could that be you know so th yeah. there was a couple of moments like that where it was it was interesting to see because like rudy said he goes i was there before rock and roll was there i was born before rock and roll yeah, like, yeah. I, yeah. so i'm like okay and john reagan same thing you know he did did what the hair metal thing with fraley's comet but Ace had been through Kiss. He'd been through Brampton. These are these are guys just trying to get a commercial foothold. They're just yeah. trying to get the get a job. Like, but they're they're seventies. It's it's a 60s, 70s approach, and, and they're and they're fighting against what they feel are constrictions because they came up in an era where it really was free. It really was all about the music because formats weren't really formats yet. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's, I've heard the, I love I've heard that. The guys in Rush talk like that too. Just in interviews and and in their movies, you know, documentaries and stuff, they talk like that too. Exactly what yeah. you're saying. Their contemporaries were were you know a little bit more of a prog rock side of things, but eventually had to fit what uh, the machine was asking them to do, or it was shit or get off the pot, kind of, which is a familiar thing until <clears throat> by the time you know well in more recent times I'll, i won't put in a year on it the labels are it's more like real estate let's regentrify this okay we need this part for a 7-eleven we need a starbucks over here and we need it let's see what makes the most money it becomes cookie cutter at some point and rush yeah. wasn't having any of that so they wrote 2112 
when the label wanted them to sound like bad company or something yeah which is what was hot at the time i get it i get it yeah but it, it they were like more like middle finger and then by moving pictures they had created they had like ah ha, ha, we got you because we we figured out how to straddle the line we can do you know more of a pop sensibility but we're still a prog metal band kind of because they yeah. kind of invented it you know and and i i've always been envious of that type of conviction right where sure. it, it, it's not clouded like what is it like to love music that much where the opportunity golden opportunities are in your hand and you jeopardize all because you actually can't live with yourself if you don't if you don't do it that way like neil Peart, I, i'll go work on the farm i don't care i'm not doing that i can't pretend a stranger's a long way to friend i'm gonna do it my way i have to yeah. like i mean and, and to have that that strength and the belief where at least they'll know like i love that story yeah me Wonderful. too but the thing is they fucking did it they figured, I know they did it anyway <laughs> they figured out their own way to appease the assholes who were wanted them to just like completely change their whole way they did shit it's like we're not doing that so f up you and yeah. here's the temples of syrinx and i'm gonna sing even higher yeah. and we're gonna play even faster and we're gonna have explosions and shit you got you yeah got, find me one bad company record that does that yeah find me one yeah. bad company song that's nine minutes long you know you can't so <laughs> i don't know it wasn't like they were harping on bad company and neither am i i love bad, but the point is the point yeah. uh, tom sawyer at a concert today is being played right after highway to hell or right after for you know whatever any, anything anything that's contemporary i'll say it hair metal tom sawyer is right there with it is rush a hair metal band right see there, you see there where you i'm go. going with yeah, that yeah, somebody, yeah, yeah, yeah. somebody who is just putting a writing on a box throw the hair metal records in there are they throwing rush in there i hope not what the <laughs> fuck are they throwing led zeppelin in there oh my god i just sinned by even yeah. putting those in the same sentence yeah. well that's they're they're another case like van halen right where it's template stuff you yeah. know yeah you got the dark occult based guitar player you got the gorgeous lead singer who can sing in the stratosphere Shit. You got it sounds like we're talking about night songs again there you go well that's it maybe we are <laughs> wow <laughs> Yeah, Full circle, man. I, oh, I yeah. love that you mentioned Rick Emmett in in this conversation because uh, you know I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and Triumph had an early foothold in San Antonio before they had a foothold in most other places in North America or the United States, I should say. Um, so Triumph is a band that San Antonio holds very near and dear, and I find it interesting that you you mention them in this conversation because. Much like Rick Emmett, I always think of them as a 70s band because I heard them on the radio when they had albums like Just a Game and Rock and Roll Machine. And I remember when Never Surrender and Thunder 7 and that stuff came out, they were great records, but they were definitely of the time. And much like Rick said to you, he'd already had a career up to that point. So I, I find that that that's really interesting um, that that 
they can almost they can sort of be identified as an 80s band and i think you nailed it on the head their appearance at the us festival alongside motley crew quiet riot but you know judas priest and scorpions were there uh and they were 70s bands uh but they were peaking in the 80s i guess so yeah. it, it's easy to see why triumph could possibly be considered an 80s band even though they had so much behind them at that point I think it was just because I, I I received them through video, right? Like that's where I came to know Triumph. It was Follow Your Heart, and it was Sport of Kings. After that, you know, it was like they were a, a video band that I saw as contemporaries of Motley Crue. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, see, I saw the videos with the light, and you know, Triumph were pioneers of of the lighting and the arena rock thing, yeah. right? So they had similar rigs and the ramps, and you know, the big drum sets and the pyro, and and so they were kind of embracing embracing that kind of spectacle too which was being embraced by by the newer generation of bands so it felt like it was it felt like they were contemporaries whereas rick saw it as something different and saw motivations and inspirations different and, and rightfully so right like I mean, yeah i was like oh okay so that, you, that was illuminating did oh, you by the, way, the guitar player uh who's your paul is it paul liddell your guitarist and yeah. he looks yeah he likes rick emmett i saw that guitar he was playing he's oh, yeah. flying v yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's gotta be a that gotta be a Rick thing. That well, I don't I don't know so much, but I, I, he, he I'm sure he's a Triumph fan and as well as a Rick uh, a Rick fan. Now here's here's the the story about that old white. It's an OG. That's an original. That's old. Uh, I saw it on the cruise. I was drooling. Yeah, I was like that oh. white that white flying V. <laughs> that old Dean white flying V. That's the actual guitar that he tracked all of the guitars on cool from the wire album with. Wow. So it's a historical re it's kind of a talisman to the yeah. revamped dirty looks is that he has to play that guitar because it's, you know, the, the OG group with Henrik Ostergaard was in the studio with that same guitar. So when it's on the stage with us, it's kind of like the, t oh, the talisman, right? The talisman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> glad it, it you notice that. It's very Rick Emmett. Yes, it is. Loved it. And by the way, you were amazing with them. So much so that I, after I watched you guys on the pool stage, uh, when I got home, I, I started deep diving again in the catalog. And really, it's taken on a whole new meaning for me. Like, I realized how it, it, ahead of the time that that was. Uh, there was some really incredible stuff on there. So thanks for that. I I, I, I deep dove in the catalog after. Yeah, and that's kind of what we were sort of hoping for. Uh, the legacy that you know the, of the songs that Henrik Ostergaard wrote with Paul and Jack, and uh, and even Gene. So you know, just in the room with those guys is like I was saying, but that there was only one Henrik Ostergaard that guy was just a motherfucker yeah. I mean no one sounds like that or plays like that and he it, he would just bled that shit another thing this is kind of an interesting sort of like full circle that Paul has been in Dangerous Toys since the early 90s as Max Norman produced Cool from the Wire we heard Cool from the Wire on the radio station that David grew that Metal Dave here grew up listening to at a toys gig, we heard Oh Ruby on the radio come to find that it was Max Norman who produced that. This is pre-toys being taken serious. Six months later, we get a deal. A couple months later after that, we're in the studio with Max Norman. Who produced, who produced a song? I don't know. You may have heard it. It's called Crazy Train. 
Yeah, familiar. Yeah, right. cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little ditty. <laughs> Sorry, but to sidetrack, but it's interesting and full circle. Now yeah. that's really, really good. I'm, uh, uh, Dirty Looks is that a hair metal band? There well, you go. See, it's funny if you looked at the logo and you looked at that the close up uh, of the of, of the face on there with yeah, the Henry's Henry's face. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, you could see that they were trying to make it commercially compatible. But yeah. to me, I'm hearing the darker side of Cheap Trick, ACDC, yes. like it, yeah, it, it's not hear, dark for a lot of stuff. Do you hear accept? Because I hear oh, it. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, they're, they're definitely the Teutonic thing happening in there, too. The, the, yeah, the even opposite. Like, but even uh, cool from the that's yeah, yeah. except, dude. That's totally. Except. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of people miss that, and they just see you know glammy lyrics, and 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 you know they did have a bunch of hair, and they're dancing around in the video. Whatever. That's that's a trend that we follow, or it's just how you dance to your own music. Yeah. That doesn't that doesn't mean that it's. Uh, gonna end up in a box called hair metal in my house. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I put dirty looks in the same category as dangerous toys, junkyard. Yeah. Uh, we met, we mentioned Thank Tesla you, earlier. Yeah. yeah, the bands that are from that era but didn't really subscribe to the the image of the era. Right. Like Who, where would you put where would you put Raging Slab and Circus of Power? <laughs> you know that, what I mean? That was alternative before there was alternative. That's right. Yeah. Where, where were those motherfuckers going to go at a poison party? You know what yeah. I mean? They, they yeah. just, I, we need to leave. We're not allowed in this party. You know, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, that East was, Coast thing. It was, like, I remember thinking it was distinctly New York. There was something distinctly New York about... I don't, I don't know if where Raging Slab was from, but I think Circus no, they, were, Powers. They, were, they were from they were, New York. Yeah. Yeah. It felt New York to me. There's a band called Smash Gladys. They were wearing cow, Raging Slab. We're wearing cowboy hats. They look like Leonard Skinner. They yeah, had that's a, right. They had, this cool, they had this cool chicket playing slide guitar on a Bo Diddley on every song. I was like, that's like Rose Tattoo living on a farm. Right. Yeah. Heavy metal songs or something. Yeah. Little so, trivia, I, little trivia here on the subject of Raging Slab and that chick, and you might you might know this, Jason and and Sean, you might know this as well. Do you know that they are the models on the cover of the UFO album? Uh, uh, Force it? Is it Force it? Where there's a bathroom scene? Yeah. Th what? Raging Slab. Hold Look on a second. What do you mean, Raging Slab? Is like when they're, the when they're in the bathtub making out, the guy with the yes. police? The yes. couple, the couple. Yes. It's, yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. I need. I need some fact check. Hey, you Somebody out the fact truck? Check. Are you getting this? I need <laughs> to look that up for me. Yeah. Look okay. it up. Look it up. There's a UFO connection with. Yeah. The, can with you check that button. for me? Because I think Dave's full of shit. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. Wow. Well, that was in the seventies. How were were they? Fifteen. Oh, I don't know that, but uh, I did read somewhere that they were the they were the models, the the cover models for that record. Well, Forsets, you mean the, the what the couple that's in the the singer and the guitar player? Okay, I, I don't know if it's the couple in the band. One of the one, if not both of the people on that album cover are from Raging Slab. That's wow. crazy because uh, that's an English. I, I, I don't know if it is or not because. Wow, it's I have a to look hypnosis album cover. Yeah, it would have been, yeah, been a hypnosis, hypnosis album. Yeah, it is hypnosis. Yeah. Are they in England or are they in New York? 
I think they're English, aren't they? I think, I think so, too. So were they flying oh, the models from New York to over to England to do the cover? Or did they just shoot the photo and do some, you know? I have no idea how the connection was made, but I'm pretty you just, certain. You just, de- you just derailed my brain. Wow. When we get done today, Google it. So, Sean, I was going to ask you kind of like my other my previous question. Was there anyone that you interviewed for the book that really like took a defensive stance about hair metal and was like, thank God you're writing this book. I got to get something off my chest. It's about time somebody set the record straight. Was there anybody in that camp? I'm trying to think. I, I, I don't think so. Like, I mean, I think, you know what? I think D, uh, D Snyder might have intimated that to me. I don't know if yeah. it made it into the book. I, I know Jason and I talked about, you yeah. know, like that with the music we valued and the value we put on music. And, and But, you know, it was funny. I think by that point, when I got, by the time I got to the line of question, I was more interested in artistic intention and, and the music side of things. I, I was less about the defense of it. You know, maybe talking to Ricky Rocket, you know, I, I maybe maybe Ricky kind of said, "Hey, thanks for acknowledging that we actually like music." You know, what I mean? yeah. like you know, yeah. and, and and he said, "Look, none of us are virtuosi. Like that's not what we do. But but we love stars. We love cheap trick. We love rock and roll. Like we listen to music. We're fans. You know, yeah, of course. You know? Like it, it comes from the heart. Uh, it, you know, it's just you know, we we also like putting on a show. Like that's what we do. Like it's authentically us. So I think a few people." Uh, might have mentioned it was nice to talk about something other than just the image and the sex and the drug. Like I, I didn't get into that because who cares? I know I know lawyers who have more sex and drugs than the rock and roll musician oh, friends I have. You oh, know what I mean? Like, I mean, oh yeah, I, yeah. Like yeah. like that that that's a uh, football players. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, Jace, but for me now it's weird if I'm at a gig and I see someone doing something. I kind of like everyone else is just like kind of being normal people and then someone doing something weird it's like oh interesting yeah yeah that still yeah. happens like you feel compelled to do that in front of human beings I, I, okay. I walk out and laugh at them i'm going yeah. what the fuck are they doing <laughs> yeah yeah hey hey dude can you tug on their shirt hey you're not 17 anymore this yeah. is not this is not what you're, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is not what's happening here. But you know, they already, they had their own dad. I don't need to be their dad. Yeah. Well, that's it. Right. Like do it, do what you want. But I just find right. it like odd when people think that this is happening on a regular basis. It's right. like, well, so then, yeah, I, I, my kids got soccer tomorrow morning. I'm catching the 4am flight, but yeah, let's party all night. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but before I forget, uh, in, uh, in the metal years, the decline of the Western Penelope Spheris movie, yeah. everybody knows yeah. what I'm talking about. Uh, they're interviewing Lemmy, you know, he's sitting up on the Hill, the Hollywood lights are behind him. It's the scene is iconic when you think about it now, especially with that we lost Lemmy, but the yeah. point they're asking him questions and they I think they bring up poison. And he like, what do you think about, you know, the glam and the makeup and the hair and the da da da? And he doesn't snipe at them at all. He calmly takes a drag and he goes, hey, more power to him, man. I wish I could pull that off. I just uh, that, that's not me. But he he, he gave them a pass. He yeah. didn't say F you. That's all wrong. That has nothing to do with what's coming out of the speakers. Fuck. He, he didn't know. Yeah. In fact, I think that, is, that same 
that same sure scene, I think, is where he says, is, is that the one where he says the famous line, run it up the flagpole and see who salutes? Or is that is that maybe it sounds right? Maybe. And, and, and oddly enough, many years later, C.C. DeVille played a solo on a on a Motorhead record. I love that. So there yes. you go. And, yeah, you know, I, guys. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, please go ahead, John. Um, I, I was just going to say you mentioned the decline in Western civilization. We all know the famous Chris Holmes scene, you know. Yeah. I have to tell you, one of the most poignant moments of that cruise we just did was getting to spend some time with Chris. Wow. Because he he watched our set and, and and he came over and he's like, oh, I'm a guitar player. I'm going, yeah, I know you're a guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But but the innocence and love of music and talking about tone and I know where Chris Holmes comes from. Like he is coming from like childhood friends with Eddie Van Halen. Like growing up in that scene and george lynch was just about to play with lynch mom and he goes come on man let's go watch george play he's playing great and like this is not the guy we saw at decline of western no, civilization no. Right. this is a, a sensitive articulate music loving person who is really happy to be there taking pride in his performance like it was just so good that's one guy dave to answer a previous question i would have loved to have talked to him uh, uh and reach out because because when we started talking and I went back and listened, I can hear now. I go, yeah, man, I can hear where you came from, Eddie, where you guys were all listening to the same guys and getting inspired. And, 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 and it just kind of went in a different, more theatrical way for you. But I, I was just so impressed with that. And, and also how during his set, he said, I know that you guys all know me from the decline of Western civilization. Please don't think that that's a way to be just enjoy music and be cool. You know, like, like where he felt, a responsibility like because people would be like yeah man let's party he's going no don't maybe don't do that oh, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah like he felt some sense of responsibility for people's well-being i, I just thought the guy came across as such a classy and, and wonderful guy so, wow well, he's kind of say he's kind of saving saving some face by by being able to still still have a vehicle in order to like set the record straight just by even mentioning it and it took 30 seconds for him to go yeah that's it is like that is not me i was in a weird place let's yeah. uh, let's celebrate life not yeah. the opposite pretty cool right yeah i thought so pretty too cool. there was a few things in the book that uh that were more observations on my part that i wanted to bring up because i thought they were so cool um you mentioned uh, growing up and two very distinctive uh, musical memories for you was, was hearing Joan Jett, I Love Rock and Roll. And the, the other one that I really got a kick out of, because I, I remember when I heard this song, it blew me away and very few people remember it or knew it in the first place. And that's Laura Branigan. Yeah, Gloria. Gloria. Tell me about, uh, tell me about, Brannigan and in that moment and what and why that was still all these years later it made such an impression you just put it in your brand new book it made you know what it was my first taste of uh music-based adrenaline because i have uh, my, i had an older sister she liked kiss she liked the music that was happening but i was into hockey i was into superheroes i was too young to grasp what was happening just seemed kind of like this other thing like music was just something that happened around me. My mom playing a piano, like I, I it, did, it didn't connect with me. 
But when I heard Gloria, everything came alive inside me. Like, why do I need to hear this again? And it wasn't like you can just go on Spotify, right? You hear it and the magic's gone and you got to wait four hours till it comes back on the radio again on the one radio station in town. And, and I remember there was some reason, there was something spicy on that cassette that I wasn't allowed to have it. There was some, might have been, I don't know, something my parents didn't like. It. Like, You're not getting that. And I was like, okay. So I could have the cassette, but I loved that song so much. And it just made me feel so good. And I remember it's my first connection with an electric guitar sound. Da, da, da. It's just this one little power chord riff that only comes in like three times or something. But I would wait for it and I'd be like bracing myself. Okay, it's coming. Oh, it was great. I wish it lasted longer, you know, <laughs> and I'd have to wait for it. So I, I love that song. And then the, I, I got the lightning struck again with Joan Jett. I love rock and roll. And yeah, man, I, I don't know. Those songs just, just did it for me. And then you can amplify that by, a hundred by the time I'm getting in a Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, and Def Leppard. Then, then all these things I loved in those songs are bigger, brighter, and just a, a more electric for me. I love. I just loved that you mentioned Laura Branigan because I remember that song, and I I kind of had sort of the same take on it. It was like, man, this chick's got a great voice, and the song was just it was so catchy, but her voice. There was some kind of quality to it, some rasp or something about her voice that I just thought was really, really cool. And you didn't hear a lot of, at least I didn't hear a lot of women singing rock and roll on the radio back then. I got one for you, Darby Mills. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I yeah. got you. I got you. Darby yeah. Mills has a voice. Oh, man. Yeah. Does she and, ever. And it's, and it's, it's like Kim Carnes, Betty yes. Davis size. It's yes. it has that thing, and and w when I hear that in a in a woman's rock voice, that yes. when it turns into that, I cannot get it out of my. It's like I, Janis Joplin. I want my tone to be. Be careful what you wish for, because <laughs> once you get that tone, you you know. Okay, here's a big bag of money, Jason. We want you to sing this, you know, jingle on a truck commercial, and you're. Tr <clears throat> I'm trying to clean up my voice and sound pretty on this jingle to take home the bag of money. Yeah, we'll give you a call if we use it. You only win the bag of money if you – and see what I'm saying? But when I yeah, heard those, those ladies dig into that, it was – yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're, you're uh -huh. on to something about Gloria and, like, where she's digging in. Yeah. There's another, another observation in the book that I thought was really interesting is I had no idea that Thomas Dolby – is on Foreigner Four. Yeah, I man, he, I didn't. Know he was that. he was Mutt Lang's keyboard guy. Like he was Thomas was like you know, kind of first to market with all the, the those skills to program all those new synthesizers and the Fairlights, and so he was a programmer. He's he's on Pyromania too, right? Like he's he's in wow. there adding all those keys and stuff. And, so and so he's he's Mutt Lang's guy. Yeah, like Mutt knew him, and and I'm not sure how they met. Okay. But but he was he was someone who he could call upon to have the latest sounds, have have it programmed to teach some sometimes reticent keyboard players. They're like, no, I'm going to play B3 on this. No, actually, you're not. You're going to be playing this thing. And, you know, you're not playing Fender Rhodes on this. We're playing these uh -huh. sounds. 
And drummer, if you want to be on the album, here's a manual. Go learn how to program this thing. <laughs> you know, you're going to be, this is going to be the, wow. the light. Yeah. I, I, so. When I read that, I was, I was so surprised and I had no reason to doubt you, but I literally went and got my Foreigner 4 record out of my collection over here. And I looked on the back and sure enough, there's Mr. She Blinded Me With Science, Thomas Dolby credited on Foreigner 4. Poetry I thought that was great. I, yeah. I love finding these little gems when I read a book and, and you, there was a few of them in your book. The other thing, speaking of pyromania, is you made a, a point that I would have never considered, but you're dead on when you're talking about the song Photograph. When it gets to the chorus, where most songs, that's the big buildup of the power chords, Photograph, it all drops out and it turns into a delicate guitar picking thing behind the vocal. And I thought about it and I was like... Wow, I never, I would have never given that any thought, but you're absolutely right. It's the opposite of what you're expecting in the chorus. I from think, a isn't rock. that crazy? I think Foolin does that too. Foolin kind of, Foolin, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this, it adds space, and your ears are waiting for that. Well, that's adding space, just like Highway to Hell and Back in Black have all that space in it. I think that's a mutt. Yeah, it's a mutt thing. Must yeah. be a mutt thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey. okay. well, as well, ACDC is one of those bands that, you know, you know, the space, the, the notes you're not playing are, is, is, are, are as important as the notes you're playing. Notes you're right. not playing can be more powerful than the notes you're playing. And they've did that before, long before Mutt. But the but what a great uh, producer by way of being able to take that and use it, utilize it in making uh, a hard rock heavier ilk of song and having it chart. Incredible. Yeah, just and, a and, little. Yeah. <laughs> what what I what I loved about Mutt too, like you know, especially in those days, was like. The ability, it's like a chef going and picking out the ingredients. Like, you know, with Def Leppard, we, I was lucky enough, I did some dates opening up with them, a band I was in. I, I, uh, anytime I have a chance to talk to people, I pick their brains, right? I'm just going after everybody and asking questions. But they were very, very, to the man, willing to talk about this. And they said the same thing. We were open vessels for him. Mm. But we were included and valued. So he knew, he'd already honed in on what each guy brings to the table. And you all do the work. You, they did the work. They're generating ideas. He's in there generating ideas too. But what he's doing is pulling the best out of every person to create the thing. But it is generated. It's not going out and calling Steve Lukather and all the session guys. It's this group will make this thing and we will spend as long as it takes to make it the way I hear it. Yeah. Because I already hear, I know I want Joe Elliott's flavor on this. I know I want Phil Collin doing this solo. I know Steve's going to do this. I know Rick's going to program. Like, but we're going to do this together. Your voice will be there, but it will be seen through that. And his genius and, and their willingness, the willingness of uh, the genius in Def Leppard, the band, is their willingness to accept the information and process it and come to the table and challenge them. So it's work ethic. Yeah. And Vivian Campbell said the same thing. He goes, Def Leppard is about work ethic, plain and simple. Work harder. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Vivian Campbell, who was in Sweet Savage, whom when Metallica first started, they used to cover his songs. Boom, fucking mic yeah. drop. 
Isn't that, I know. Isn't that the craziest <laughs> fucking thing? I, I saw mean, a picture of Sweet Savage the other day, and they're in fucking Belfast, Ireland, wearing fucking spandex in like 1977. You know, it's like a 45 cover, and I'm like, holy diver, bitch. Yeah. yeah. Holy diver, motherfucker. Metallica <laughs> influenced Metallica, you know. And now he's in Def Leppard. He's cra- hey, oi, mate. How's it got? You yeah. know, it's fucking crazy, man. It's just crazy. Uh, Pretty crazy trajectory. I've got, oh, I've got, I'm going to blow your mind. I got to disappear for a second. I'm, I'm right here. Okay. I don't know. I don't like holding stuff up to the camera. That's Vivian Campbell's autograph. Whoa. On a, kit, on a scalloped neck kit Stratocaster, look different color of uh, <laughs> of, of oh, that's so cool. right there. Yeah, Vivian Campbell. Uh, I inherited this from my friend uh, Eric Pauly, who's no longer with us. Uh, and uh, I don't know the backstory really, but Vivian Campbell's autograph on this Strat that actually plays quite well. Oh my wow. gosh, that's incredible. So I wanted to yeah, ask you, but I always say Vivian Campbell from Sweet Savage, and people are like, what? What? Yeah, <laughs> I always say Vivian Campbell from Dio, but yeah, it works. I wanted yeah. to ask you one more question about the book because this, this, uh, uh, this, this chapter or these paragraphs or whatever it was, what it, whatever it amounted to, uh, was great, and and this is the 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 story where you are auditioning for D. Snyder's Christmas. Uh, production or yeah and you uh, obviously a d snyder fan uh a little nervous and intimidated about the audition uh to say the least you get the audition <laughs> they make you shave your your back or something like that my to, arms your arms <laughs> okay d snyder's wife has shaved my arms with an electric razor this is true <laughs> Recap that story for us real quick. Talk, talk, talk about Long Island. Here's Long Island. So, I, we're, you know, I've got the gig and I, I'm acting in this, right? Like, it's not just playing. Like, I got to speak. I got to sing. I got to dance. We got a Broadway choreographer. Like, wow. Yeah, it was a thing. <laughs> but she goes, get that shit off there. You can't have that. That's not rock and roll. Give me a razor. Give wow. a razor to me. <laughs> and she goes, Dad, now it's rock and roll. Because she designed all the Twisted Sister outfits. That's Suzette. Yeah. She designed it. And she is a brilliant woman. I, I, I love her. She is hardworking, you know, absolutely fiercely intelligent, amazing woman. Uh, but, yeah, but she, she, she lets you know, hey, you put on a few pounds since uh, the first audition. You got to fit in these pants now. And, you know, people are like, oh, you can't say that to the actor. She's like, hell, I can. And I'm like, yeah, man, I, I want to fit in my spandex. Yeah, let it, let it rip. <laughs> no problem. I'm with you, Miss Snyder. Yeah. <laughs> and and I know she was amazing. So that was one of it. But yeah, the, the whole audition thing, I got that gig because I was playing in a band called Four by Fate with, with uh, Todd Howarth and John Reagan from Fraley's Comet, Stet Howland. And we were uh, managed by Danny Stanton, who is uh, Dee Snyder's agent. Long story short, I see Dee's coming to town and I'm going, oh, it's a, it's a musical. Maybe I can get a job playing guitar in the band. I would be said, so Danny, can you can you get me an audition? He goes, Oh yeah, man. No, let me see what I can do. And sure enough, he comes through with the audition. And they said, Yeah, okay, man. So the audition's here. Uh, you know, and I'm going, okay, cool. And he goes, Yeah, so we'll send the script over. And I go, the script? What do you mean? <laughs> well, yeah, you gotta act in it. 
I go, what? <laughs> so they send over the script, and it's not just a little bit. Like, I'm acting. I'm one of the four main guys acting in the play. And I go, oh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? I'm, 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 I am I'm, don't know what I'm doing. So I, I kind of learned some lines. And I remember I had a gig with uh, a Canadian band called Rough Trade, and, I, and we were playing a festival gig. So I played the gig, and I, it was six hours away. I drove home, and I was pretty tired. That helped. I was tired. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to do the best I can. I had to work the night before. But I remember, if you think musicians are cutthroat, man, sit with a bunch of actors going for a gig. So what have you been in recently? I've done this and this, and, and I'm going, oh, I think I saw you when We Will Rock It. Oh, I saw you. And they're just psyching me out, right? Like, I'm not, I said, okay, I'm not getting this. But you had to play guitar to get the gig. Mm-hmm. And I could hear them playing. I went, that ain't Eddie Ojeda, and that ain't J.J. French in there. I, so I think I might have a shot at one of this. Anyway, so I that, that kind of bolstered my confidence, right? So I went in and read some lines at first, and I could just see the blank faces, you know, like, okay, uh, go, go play. But the, uh, the music director at the time was uh, Doug Katsouris, and Doug played on Paul Stanley's solo albums. Like, I knew who he was. He played wow. on, I think he played on Runaway by Bon Jovi. Like, he was a, he oh, was a heavy right. New York cat, right? Our going, player. Ah, a keyboard player. Keyboard, all right. Yeah, so he's the music guy. And so I, I go, okay, at least there's a muso here. I, I know what you're about just by we're the same creature. So, you know, like that made me feel good. And, and he goes, can you read a chart? And I went, yeah, you know, I can, I can. Okay. So we played and I sang a bit and they kind of got the idea. It's like, oh, okay, you can, you do this and you know how to move. I don't have to teach you about rock and roll stuff. So they said, okay, well, after I played, they said, okay, I'm sending an acting coach to your house tonight. Learn how to act. D's coming tomorrow. I said, no problem. But this, fortunately, they sent this acting coach to my house who was amazing. And he said, look, dude, plant your feet, speak at the, speak at the speed of conversation. Best thing I ever heard. Like, yeah. instead of trying to be an actor, you know, you just talk. Okay. And, yeah. and that really helped. And he kind of gave me some pointers. And long story short, D. Snyder, I got the plate. We're not going to take it for D. Snyder. And he came up and he said, you roasted the occasion. And it was the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> you know, like your hero telling you that. So nice. Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. Wow. Yeah, I, I couldn't uh I couldn't finish up on the book without having you uh retell that story because I I could feel the excitement reading it off the page, you know. It's like, oh man, you know, I, I could feel the pressure. <laughs> yeah, and his, but, and his wife took a razor to you. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> At least it was my arms, not my throat. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it was amazing. It was incredible. Wow. So you've done two books now. Um, what would be the topic of your third book if you were going to, or do you have something in mind? I got a scoop for you guys. I All just right. signed a deal for the third book. So, so it's going to be Battle Axes, A Hard Rock and History of the Pointy Guitar. Oh, I like it. <laughs> I love it. And the idea being, I don't know if that's going to be the title. That's what we're working on right now. But the idea being, I'm obsessed with guitars that are pointy or off shape. Why does it generate this feeling of excitement in me? And right. what is it like for players who have these identifiable guitars? Like, why did Chris Holmes feel the need to have a guitar like that? That was Charvel Stars. Why did Eddie tape up his? Why did Randy have 
you know, the offset flying V. And it's really, I think I want to do a little bit of a history about pointing tires because there's controversy there too. I, I, I remember when I got the gig with Nelly Furtado, I had an endorsement with BC Rich. And I remember showing up and the music director going, all right, I know you're in Helix, but you can't play guitar on stage. You right. know, we're, we're doing, we're playing Latin pop right now. You know, <laughs> we use Gibson or whatever it was. And, you yeah. know, I was like, okay. Uh, and now it wouldn't have mattered, but, you know, you got to play what's right for the gig. So there's definitely strong feelings about, you know, those guitars in the way that there's strong feelings about music genres. Uh, so a little bit of a history of that, but, and I think that I there's, uh, yeah, but really I want to find out about what, what excites people about the instruments they play and what's that connection uh, beyond the playability. Like, like I, I think you said it best today, Jason, the talismanic qualities of an instrument and what that represents. Like that's an amazing story that that represents power, the power of that band, the spirit of that band. It's uh, yeah. it's it's part of the history. Uh, belongs in a fucking museum, if you ask me. Yeah, it's the lore of of a band or an artist <laughs> or or something like that. Speaking of that, uh, and Canadian rock and metal, uh, and your your scoop on your new book about battle axes i.e. pointed guitars, yeah. choice, whatever, yeah. uh, the, because they look like uh, yeah. The, yeah. Um, the guitars that Piggy from Voivod used to make. Yes. Those were crazy, right. like jag. They look like he was just gluing razor blades together and then tracing it out. And it was just this like, ah. Yeah. And it was a. Uh, Probably reminiscent of, and maybe even Piggy could have been helped by Away, the drummer, uh, Michelle, uh, the idea of of what's, what guitar says Voivod the best. Well, I, I've had the distinct opportunity to stand, this was in 1986, to stand over Piggy's shoulder, look at him change strings on one of those handmade guitars. Wow. And where does someone get a guitar like this and he turns around and in broken english he says i make wow <laughs> what a bit i make perfect oh, yeah. beyond over the top uh, yeah. a, a perfect band in my eyes yeah um because there's no rules they made the rules and we we ride on our own highway you know uh and they're still riding on their own fucking highway uh but what, those guitars piggy made that's the first thing i thought of is like you know what makes that why does the band i don't know this sounds crazy when i even say it before i even say it to preempt it why does the bands oh the for to sound that way they have to have that guitar with all the points on it to sound that way I think it's, it, it, it's, it's like purity of intention. Like, like they're in Jean-Pierre, Quebec, right? Northern Quebec, a couple of albums between them. I remember I interviewed Michelle for uh, my first book. Wow. And I, I play in a band now called Coney Hatch, a Canadian. Yeah. Art. yeah. And, Shoot, uh, dude, hold on a second. Time out. So Helix, yeah. Coney Hatch, uh, <laughs> yeah. Aaron, yeah. you're in all of the like classic 
like dude i'll use it again talisman like lore of of canadian metal and hard rock you're you're like this <laughs> you're the peacemaker you're the band-aid you're the heavenly creature who's like keeping this alive i just fucking love it i'm sorry to i just had to oh, tell you that I, i'm so lucky i you know i i just i just show up and i guess eventually they let me in i don't know well <laughs> and i'm working with a guy uh out of jersey jack frost i don't know if you know i know jack i know jack yeah fantastic I'm, right, nova. I'm writing songs he's in fucking aldo nova i know dude i was just I just was he, talking to someone. He who, took your he gig. Was, he took your I, gig. I should be in all the Nova. <laughs> I thought I was. No. <laughs> well, you're oh, playing it. with every other Canadian rock band. You know, next thing <laughs> you know, you're going to whip out Sign of the Gypsy Queen. Oh, I got the call, man. I got a call. Oh, my and God. Here, here's my April Wine story. Dude, April Wine's on the cruise coming up. I know. I know. I want to get back on there. Yeah. But that I got a call sport. to play bass with them from their two. Oh. Their, I had just gotten off the road with Gilby Clark playing bass, and I got a call because their, their tour manager was from my hometown, Steph, and he goes, hey, man, our bass player is gone. He's playing with Celine Dion now, and, and, and I need – can you learn this? I'm in. So, so he sends me the set, sends me all the stuff. Okay, man, here are the dates, big string of dates. I'm going, and then Miles Goodwin phones me. He goes, hey – you're a guitar player. And I go, yeah, but I play bass. He goes, let me stop you right there. I play bass too if someone puts a gun to my head. I'm too old to take a new band promo shot. You'll be gone as soon as you get a guitar gig. And I went, yeah, probably. He goes, well, thanks for your time. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I lost wow. it. <laughs> wow. You know what, man? He wasn't wrong. He, 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 like talking right. about a guy who's been through the ringer, right? Yeah, you yeah. can't get mad about that. So. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. I just thought it was so funny. I'd never, I never gotten earned and lost a gig so fast in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of all your gigs, and we, we don't have time to go into it all today, but yeah. uh, just to recap, you know, you, you, you've, you've played or play in Helix, Coney Hatch, uh, Lee Aaron, the Metal Queen. Uh, pop star Nelly Furtado, um, but I know you and met you as the guy who fronted his own band called Crash Kelly. What is the yeah. status on Crash Kelly today? Guys, I can tell you uh, with great joy that I just got the first mix back of some new Crash Kelly music uh, that's going to be coming out, but it's, it's a companion album for the book. So I'm going to be doing oh. all these classic 80s covers and, and I just did the first one and, and I'm, I'm working. So I'm working on that right now. I'm working on a new record that's going to come out as a Crash Kelly record. Um, and, you know, I, I have such fond memories of us playing together, Broken Teeth and Crash Kelly in Los Angeles. And Jason was so uh, kind and, and, and encouraging and complimentary. And I have to tell you what that meant to me as someone who was suffering from severe imposter syndrome at the time. Why do I have a record deal? Why am I in L.A.? And this isn't to get that kind of feedback from someone you really admire and you looked up to and you had the records and you listened to over and over again was very, very, uh, it was so, so important to my development. So Jason, I want to thank you. I thank you for that, but I'll do it publicly. So thank you. Well, <laughs> well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, uh, I, I am very impulsive. And if I'm having a feeling, I'm sure that that's where it was coming from. So it was genuine. And I was I was walking up to you to go. Yeah. Yes. 
So it was an ex- it was a, a, a genuine excitement for me to be able to tell you uh, whatever you said I told you. <laughs> you know what, man? It, yeah. it, 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 we were talking about touch. You talked the way you played. It was yeah. the way I played guitar and like just, yeah, you, you the way I touched. And I just said, wow, no one's ever said that to me or articulated that to me. And that just, you know, you take that with you then. Like that's something that you take with you and you're confident about. And you go and you bring it into your other work. So thank you. You're you're welcome. You mentioned that the that this upcoming Crash Kelly album is basically cover tunes because it's a companion piece to your uh, don't call it hair metal book. Yeah. Uh, is there any plans in the future for another album of original material from Crash Kelly? Yes. In fact, I have some songs that I wrote with a, a fellow named Mo Berg. I don't know if you're familiar with a band called The Pursuit of Happiness. Mm. Um, Great Canadian. Listen, check them out. A fantastic Canadian power pop band. They were they were Guns N' Roses' favorite band back in the day. I know that. Gilby oh. Clark told me that. Yeah. So check them out. The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, and so Mo and I wrote a few songs recently uh, that that I, I I have there waiting to to go. It's just you know I've been busy with other things, but now is the time in my life after writing this book. I am feeling very. I, I feel like it's something I need to do. It's funny today. I will tell you this. I was down at my studio and I'm singing, I want to be somebody by Wasp. Oh. And, and I was able to put myself into the place of my 14 year old self and sing that. Mm. And it was an incredible experience. What a gift to have that song out there in the universe. What a gift it was back then to have it, to have something where it's like, you know, I, I want to be somebody. It's true. Like, you know, I do want to be somebody like this, this anthem, this rallying call for individuality, right? When you're feeling like you're just part of the wallpaper is pretty powerful. So this is something I, I, I'm i doing that I just feel I have to do. I don't think I'm adding anything new to these songs. I'm certainly not the greatest singer in the world, but I feel I have to. And I realize it's really the culminating exercise uh culminating activity in this exercise i always just wanted to get inside the music i loved i wanted to be inside it and now that's this allows me to do that and i'm working with a very talented engineer uh mixer frank griner who he just sent me the mix and it sounds like you dropped the needle and it sounds like when i'm in my parents basement in 1986 and this is this is what i want yeah so Hopefully there's a few people out there in the world who want that too. But, I, but if there's not, I I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we well, want I, it, we want it here at the talk louder podcast. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. yeah. Thank I was going to, uh, I was going to play show and tell today, but I, I, I didn't prepare myself. I still have the crash Kelly, uh, three quarter sleeve raglan that you gave me at South by Southwest, uh, in 2005. And uh, it's three quarter sleeve, oh. like baseball jersey. So I can only wear it in the winter time. And and here in Texas, that means about two weeks out of February. Right. But, <laughs> but I do oh, still man. have it. That's I do amazing, still have man. it. Yeah. Now, I wanted to make sure that Crash Kelly was still active and still possibly doing something. I'm happy to hear that, that you are. Tell people where they can get your book. Uh, don't call it hair metal. Where yeah, can you know. Get? Anywhere you find books, I, I, I've been blessed with a really great uh, publisher, ECW Press, a great distributor. So at all your, uh, I forget what your big chain is at Borders. That's uh, one yeah. of them. That's yeah. one of them. Uh, Amazon, anywhere you find books. And you know what? I know you can get in a lot of cool ind- independent bookstores. So, you know, 
Barnes and Noble. Barnes, Barnes, Barnes and Noble. Noble is still around, yeah. Yeah, people, any, people should... Any, anywhere you can use, you get your books, you should be able to get Excellent. it. Well, it's it's a great book, so congratulations. Uh, I know uh, I can imagine putting a book together is a lot of time and effort, especially when you interview people on top of just the writing that you would have done by yourself. So a job well done. Thank you for entertaining me with the pages. Thank you for sending it to me. Uh, I appreciate it, and I hope others will too. Don't call it hair metal. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with our special guest today, Sean Kelly on the Talk Louder podcast.